Dr. Craig Bruce Smith is an assistant professor of history and the director of the history program at William Woods University. He earned his PhD in American history from Brandeis University, and he specializes in early American culture and intellectual history during the 18th century and the age of revolution, specifically looking at ethics, national identity, and transnational ideas. In addition, he has broader interest in colonial America, the early republic, leadership, the Atlantic world, military history, and the American founders. Uh, Craig is the author of An American Honor, the creation of the nation's ideals during the revolutionary era, a copy of which he'll be happy to sign if you purchase after the lecture. Uh, and I also just note that uh, Craig was one of the early fellows to uh, study in residence at the George Washington Presidential Library, which I had the privilege of helping to create while I was at Mount Vernon. Uh, so we're thrilled to have Craig with us now to speak on Jefferson and Washington. Please join me in welcoming Craig Bruce Smith. Well, thank you for the warm welcome and the kind introduction. And uh, thanks for everyone for coming out today. Um, so I want to thank the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and the Virginia Historical Society for allowing me the opportunity to come here and speak with you all. Um, I was joking before, uh, I just put Washington and Jefferson in the title and figured the rest would work itself out here in Virginia. <laughs> so um, title the talk Virginia Honor, uh, Virginian Honor, uh, to focus on the lives and the ideas and the ethics of two very prominent Virginians who are George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who in many ways came to inspire uh, a more national story. So I'm using them very much to look at the expansion of ideas in America, but uh, through two different sort of upbringings coming from uh, Virginia. Um, so this is drawn from my new book, uh, Shameless Plug. Um, won't be the last either. Uh, American Honor, which I would be happy to sign for you. Um, so as it's a book talk, please indulge me as I read a, sh a few short excerpts. I know there's nothing worse than someone getting up here and reading. I promise I'll only do it for the good parts. From the Sons of Liberty to the Son of Thunder, Crisis had brought them to Philadelphia. Years of resentment and demands of liberty sparked the rattle of carriages and the thump of horseshoes from all corners of the 13 colonies. Delegates from each of the colonies gathered in the Pennsylvania capital for a general Congress ready to resist Great Britain and if necessary, to risk their all. Each morning they arose for a purposeful stroll along Chestnut Street and that brought them down a cobblestoned alleyway. Although flanked by buildings on either side, it was still wide enough for the gentlemen to continue their conversations side by side. Every inch of their nearly 250-foot approach framed their destination, an elegant Georgian building of vibrant red brick, accented in crisp white and crowned with a rising spire. Once inside, all 56 individuals had to saunter down a long entry before turning east. Each then sat on a wooden Windsor chair facing a small writing desk on which he would help to decide the future of his country. Despite the hour, the chamber was dark, illuminated only by the dancing flicker of candles. The shutters had been drawn. All inside understood the gravity of their moment and their task. This assembly was like no other that ever existed, remarked John Adams of Massachusetts. For every man in that 20 by 30 foot room was a great man. Sequestered inside, the delegates debated theorists Amer de Vatel, Jean-Jacques Berlamaki, John Locke, and Montesquieu like philosophers. Using these texts to inform their conceptions of colonial rights and justice, each ultimately made a pledge based on sacred honor. The date was October 20th, 1774. The American patriots gathered in Carpenter's Hall and unanimously declared themselves associated under the sacred ties of virtue, honor, and love of our country. At the signing of the Declaration of Independence in July 1776, roughly two years and a thousand feet away, many of the same patriots, now delegates of the Second Continental Congress, repeated and expanded on the sentiments of the first when they pledged their lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These words offered at the Pennsylvania Colonial Legislature, soon to be known as the State House or Independence Hall, form the foundation of a new nation, and they are arguably the most famous reference to honor in American history. 
However, the earlier invocation of honor, virtue, unity, and the willingness to hazard virtually everything suggests a unity of thought that existed prior to independence. After only 51 days, the delegates of the First Continental Congress, most of whom who had never actually met before, displayed a common cause. They came from diverse origins and held varied religious beliefs. Was less than two months together enough to form a like mind? Or was it something else? There already seemed to be a commonality that allowed them to equate sacred rights and privileges with sacred virtue and honor. Before independence, even before the war itself, Americans' understanding of and belief in honor and virtue had united them. So this is setting the scene. I'm here to basically start by asking, um, using these two, Washington and Jefferson, obviously in later life, and how did their thinking emerge from that they are colonials to, to revolutionaries to, to Republicans? And I'll start by asking this simple question. What is honor? Anyone want to throw out an answer? Come on. OK, I heard honesty. That's a good one. Anyone else? This is the interactive portion. Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. Oh, great answer also. Accountability. Duty. Duty. Respect. Respect. Integrity. integrity. All of these are great. So what's integrity? What's respect? <laughs> What's doing the right thing? So honor has been understood in many different ways, right? So all sorts of definitions. So uh, I'm just going to throw another question for the audience. When was the last time someone used the word honor? Anyone? What do you have for me? Honor code of the University of Richmond. OK. So honor code of the University of Richmond. So aside from school codes or Okay, so this is really topical, so it, it makes me look like I'm a genius here. You're right. Um, so it has been in the news, um, so certainly coming up here. But aside from these random invocations, it's largely military, school honor codes, or when you're facing a judge. <laughs> so why is that? So we really don't use the word, and I'm here to say that honor hasn't gone away. Traditionally, honor can be understood as all these ideas that were thrown out, integrity, respect, doing the right thing, duty. And, um, heard a few other ones, but we'll say I said them. Um, it's also been understood as courage, bravery. And in a really older sense, it was about recognition from the community. If the, the community didn't think you were honorable, you didn't have honor. Very much tied into reputation. So I'm here to, to make a different case. And I'll start off, when we think of honor, you probably think of this, dueling. So this is one of the mo most uh, romanticized, vilified aspects of honor and honor culture. And I'm here to say that this is not honor. Most early Americans would have considered dueling to be inherently dishonorable. So then where does this come from? It's largely coming from, from later generations, as we're going, going to see. So what exactly is honor? It's hard to define today as it was in the 18th century. So a Cambridge professor, it's no easy undertaking to explain a word which is used by all men very unsteadily, and by most without any meaning at all. Meaning people use the word, but they have no clue what it means. All sorts of definitions. Uh, according to a military text, honor is a vague expression to which custom has given different meanings. Meaning, I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Dr. Samuel Johnson, an early author of a, a dictionary, defined honor as dignity, reputation, and virtue. Noah Webster, of that Webster's dictionary, defined honor as any particular virtue much valued. Even fictional characters got involved, including Pamela, um, who, speaking to her protagonist, Mr. B, said, I too much apprehend that your notions of honor and mine are very different from one another. That there were all these very definitions. And that's why it's so hard to sort of understand from the modern standpoint what exactly is honor and for anyone to really agree. So quick rule of thumb, just sort of quick definitions, honor 
traditionally looked at as reputation, duty, valor, proper conduct, all the things that were expressed. Virtue, usually tied to morality, linked to religion, the idea of the greater good of society. Ethics in the 18th century had to do with moral philosophy or just sort of related to morals. So we don't talk a lot about honor, but we talk a lot about ethics, medical ethics, business ethics, political ethics. So ethical ethics wasn't really, the word itself wasn't really used in the 18th century. It was really more of a 19th century and later term. The only time you really used the word was if you were talking about Aristotle. So does that mean that early Americans didn't care about ethics? Absolutely not. They just used different words for it. And the words they used were honor and virtue. So my simple math equation. So when we hear honor or virtue, think ethics for the modern year. So uh, if anyone's familiar, there's Google engrams. And this is a fun little thing. You could plug in um, words or phrases, uh, and it'll search every book published from 1500 to 2008. And you could plug in different whatever words you like. So on top, you'll see we have honor and honor. British spelling and American spelling. It changes early 19th, 1840s, uh, and virtue. And if you look at it over time, you'll notice that the highest usages of all of these terms is during the Revolutionary Era. And this got me interested in why. Um, you'll also notice that it's reached its all-time low in the modern era. Below, you'll see the term national honor, so the honor of one's country. And you'll see the all-time peak is towards the end of the revolution into the constitutional era. And then it drops down and slowly starts building during the War of 1812, and then peaks again around 1860. I don't know. Something happened then. Um, so why don't we use the word honor anymore? Look at the top graph charting the words ethical and the word honorable. You'll notice in the early 20th century, the two lines intersect. Honor as a word dies in usage. Ethics as a word rises. The two words literally change places. Whereas ethics, you'll see, is, is um, reached an all-time high in, in recent years, but you'll see that trail off at the bottom, so make of that what you will. Um, so I invite you to take this talk and look at honor as an ethical concept. So we're nominally talking about Virginia today. And uh, Jefferson is always good for these, these witty quotations. Um, and he's going to say, before the establishment of the American states, nothing was known to history but the man of the old world. The idea that all that existed were these older ideas of honor, this one that was rooted in birth status, in you advance based on who your father was, where you were born, what your connections were. Um, so we're largely starting our story in Virginia and in, in what would have been the back country. Um, you'll notice that the colony of Virginia, uh, later the state of Virginia, claims um, you know, Illinois into Michigan. And, um, so it's a very much a greater Virginia. Uh, New York also claims it, so that's a whole other issue. Uh, 1751 map, uh, this was actually done by Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, uh, just to give you some sense of, of scale. So Washington and Jefferson are both Virginians, but they're, they're born into very different environments. Uh, Washington uh, in the Chesapeake region, uh, born into a landed family, but he is a later son. He's the first son of his father's second marriage. Jefferson born more in um, what would have been the, the, the back country of Virginia. Um, the Jeffersons themselves, not necessarily uh, the gentry status, of course, but marrying into the more prominent Randolph family. Both Jefferson and Washington have very strong uh, connections to honor and advancement based on their birth. But Jefferson is not a Randolph. 
and Washington is a, is a second son. And both of these men lose their fathers at a relatively young age. Washington is about 11. Jefferson, I believe, is 13 or 14 when they lose their fathers. And with this, they lose both a role model, someone to guide them, and also someone that could ease their path. So Washington doesn't get to study in London like his older half-brothers. He has a modest education, probably a tutor, maybe a local schoolhouse, where he learns basic reading, writing, um, mathematics. Um, Jefferson uh, learns alongside uh, the Randolph children uh, with a, using the same tutor as the, the Monroe family. But they both have this sense of striving, this sense of angst, where they are um, feel left out because of their early passings of their father. They grow to resent their mothers, and, and both of them respectively, um, and choosing to not listen to a word either of them says. So it's actually their mothers have a, a very big impact because they just kind of do the opposite, especially Washington. So um, you can credit their moms with, with creating their sense of honor. Um, so how do they educate themselves in this idea of honor? Well, largely literature. Uh, Jefferson and Washington are both voracious readers. And the places they turn to honor is early literary magazines, early literature, particularly The Spectator, which is a gentleman's magazine. And in The Spectator, which is uh, published in London, you'll see there's different understandings, different presentations of what honor actually is. The great point of honor in men is courage. Shame is the greatest of all evils. I understand by the word virtue such as a general notion as is affixed to it by the writers of morality and, by, and which by devout men generally goes under the name of religion and by men of the world under the name of honor. So there's a disconnect in some ways between what is honor, what is virtue. Uh, quick rule of thumb, further north you go, virtue and honor are separate. Virtue takes precedence and is more linked to uh, religion. Further south you go, by the time you hit Virginia, virtue and honor become virtually interchangeable, and there's no inherent religious dogmatic tradition, sorry about that, uh, attached. So they're gaining these, this understanding from literature. It's, it's helping to guide them. It's also serving as a form of education. Novels themselves. Uh, in 1771, uh, uh, Jefferson's going to say that fiction taught morality better than all the dry volumes of ethics and divinity that were ever written. Why? Because people like to read them. Uh, one of Washington's favorite books, Tom Jones, um, which is a story where the main character uh, is illegitimate, but he gets involved with all sorts of activities, and in the end, it's turned out he's actually secretly the, the child of, of gentry, so therefore it's all okay. But in this book, honor, true honor and true virtue are also synonymous. So in Virginia, these ideas are really taken to heart. Washington, particularly, is, is known to author the Rules of Civility, um, which he doesn't actually write himself. It's probably most likely an exercise in penmanship. But it shows that he is aware of the older tradition of gentility, of honor as based on learning, of breeding, of dress, of action. And compared with a later published um, etiquette guide, uh, Lord Chesterfield's letters, but it was written during a comparable time period, that we see the strictest and most scrupulous honor and virtue can alone make you, make you esteemed and valued by mankind. Washington is going to record, associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation. The idea that your behavior, your conduct, your reputation can allow you to rise. Now, these are both individuals that are very much rooted in, in a high-ranking birth system, but they're individuals that are sort of held back by, um, by family status and sort of early losses. They also turn to male role models. So the top row are Washington's role models slash patrons. The bottom row are Jefferson's. So we have Lawrence Washington, uh, George Washington's older half-brother, Peter Jefferson, um, Robert Dinwiddie, Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, um, and then George William Fairfax, who's going to stand in um, for our, the sort of aristocratic Fairfax family that Washington um, is befriended by. Um, they become a pseudo-family. His older 
brother Lawrence uh, marries into the family. Uh, we also have at the bottom uh, George Wythe and William Small, who are, are um, both responsible for educating Jefferson at William and Mary, and then again as a lawyer. So they turn to other male figures to sort of guide themselves in a way, making up for the, the lack of uh, a father. And Washington's going to be aided greatly by the Fairfax family. They're going to teach him all the trappings of British aristocracy. They're, they're one of the few titled aristocrats in America. They're going to aid his passage. They're going to get him his jo first job as a surveyor. They're going to connect him with Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie. And ultimately, through these connections, he's going to be sent as an emissary to the French in, on the frontier, where there's a border dispute, um, and basically telling them to uh, remove from British territory without speaking a word of French. Patronage could do wonderful things in the 18th century. Um, Washington is not foolish. He brings a translator with him who is Dutch. His French isn't very good. Anyway, um, Washington, who is, starts off as a major of the Virginia militia, a post he's inheriting in part from his older half-brother, ultimately rises to colonel. But he, he grows resentful of the treatment of colonials during uh, the French and Indian War. And he says, we should be treated as gentlemen and officers and not have annexed to the most trifling pay that was ever given to English officers. They believe themselves to be Englishmen. Why are they being treated as less than? Why are they being paid less? If they accept less pay, that must mean they have less status, they're less honorable. Um, Washington actually offers to serve without pay rather than, than to accept this trifling sum. Um, he constantly complains about British officers saying that they outrank him. Uh, one particular British captain uh, James Mackey says he outranks Washington because he holds a king's commission, though Washington is a colonel. And Washington constantly complains to Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie about this. And it gets to a point that Dinwiddie says, fine, no colonials over the rank of captain. To which Washington responds, I must be reduced to have a very low command and subject to that of many who have acted as my inferior officers. That Washington would not allow himself to now rank at the same level as those he had formerly commanded. He said he was always ready and willing to serve, but he was concerned with my own honor first and country's well. Uh, welfare second. This is a conscious choice. This is Washington being interested in his own personal advancement, his personal honor over that of, of the colony of Virginia. And that's when, when he says country, that's what he would have uh, meant. So he briefly leaves service, but he does return as part of Braddock's defeat, where he uh, stops a route has horses shot up from under him, has bullet holes in his coat, um, rises from his sickbed ill with dysentery and stops this, this major route, and he gains international acclaim. And this is what allows him to rise. But during this, this interaction with the British army, he comes to resent the treatment over rank, over pay, over, over slights, over uniforms, over slights, over tactics. And Washington's going to come to a very interesting and dramatic change in his own life. And that is moving away from the older system of honor as patronage, as honor as birth, to something as based on merit. The idea that, if you see this quotation, that you advance, you gain honor based on merit, based on how you act, how you behave. And he set out in the Virginia militia to make promotions based exclusively on merit. In fact, the Fairfaxes, two, uh, two of the younger sons are looking for commission, and, and Washington refuses. He says, I can't do this. Uh, he does tell Governor Dinwiddie, you can do it. I just won't. Um, so the war ends. Yay. Quick one, right? All right. So what happens? French and Indian War. France is basically removed from, the, from North America. Now, that's a lot of land. 
It's a lot of land that now has to be garrisoned, a lot of land with a Native American presence where you have an uprising with Pontiac's rebellion. It's a lot of debt, about 130 million pounds worth of debt. Uh, that's 1763 money, so if someone wants to do inflation conversion, I'll wait. Um, so as the Americans benefit tremendously from this, what's to be done? And this is where you give me the high school answer. What caused the American Revolution? That's part of it. Come on, I need the phrase. There we go. No taxation without representation. And that's true to a point. But before they talk about taxes, it's not about the dollar amount. They're talking about honor. The idea that taxes, being having taxes imposed on you with no representation, with no say, they understand as being treated as a conquered people, an inferior people. So if you go to the original sources, there's mentions of, of honor and liberty and freedom just alongside these mentions of taxes, often before. So it's the treatment during the French Indian War for Washington, and also what happens later, how he comes to take his own personal connections, his own personal slights, and link it to the gr greater uh, uh, slights being going on in America. And meanwhile, Thomas Jefferson, who was a statue, um, ah, that was slightly funny, um, at the College of William and Mary. So he's being educated. and. and Colonial colleges are great centers of instilling this kind of senses of honor and virtue. And the idea was not just in curriculum, history, philosophy, religion, but in codes of conduct. Um, there were codes of conduct in early American colleges based on rank and status, who could eat first, who could line up, uh, of tipping caps, of um, placement. In, in, so you could be your class rankings, not necessarily determined by your grades, but based on your social standing. You would be admitted to college largely based on if you could get a reference of good character. And at William and Mary, um, Jefferson's going to start in, in uh, 1760, roughly the same time. I cannot pinpoint exactly. Round about this time, Jefferson's arriving. Um, he's coming from roughly 100 miles away. Uh, he doesn't know anyone. He does meet Patrick Henry on the way, who's a young lawyer. And Jefferson arrives on campus right after this monumental scandal. The professor of moral philosophy, Jacob Rowe, had recently led his students in a pitched gun battle against the local townies on the green in front of uh, the, the, the Capitol. So if you've been to Colonial Williamsburg, that, that big open green space, there. A pitched battle between the students, led by their professor of moral philosophy, against the locals. Uh, it had to be stopped. Uh, Peyton Randolph, future patriot, uh, emerges. The, um, one of the leaders of William and Mary and future governor has to, to um, intercede as well. And Rao is, is disciplined. And he responds that, how dare you send my students to their quarters. You have slighted my honor. This should have come from me. And he's, he's naturally fired. Um, he's also been known for walking around town, uh, drinking too much and swearing oaths he didn't uphold. The drinking was a slight problem. The idea of not upholding an oath was a bigger one. And Rao is replaced by William Small, who comes from Scotland, very much vested in the Enlightenment tradition. So Jefferson arrives on campus either right as this is happening or right after. So this is an introduction to William and Mary. And William and Mary has a sort of a, a, an older, perhaps in some ways more, in other ways, more modern uh, system of, of honor that students would not inform on one another. In other colleges, particularly in the northern colonies, it was expected that students would give evidence against one another to defend the name of the college as a whole. And in, in Virginia, that doesn't happen. In fact, um, uh, many of the faculty regard the student honor at William and Mary as false honor. But Jefferson is largely introduced to Enlightenment thinkers, particularly Montesquieu and John Locke. John Locke, who, who speaks of the right or the duty to revolution. Montesquieu, who, who 
argues that honor cannot exist with despotism, that a king who becomes a despot or a tyrant cannot be honorable, and therefore no bonds of honor need be held. Jefferson comes to a philosophical understanding led by men like William Small and George Wythe. He comes to this philosophical understanding, this intellectual movement of resistance to Britain. Meanwhile, Washington takes things a bit more personally. He was a Virginia planter. He had large debts. And this is not uncommon. It's actually a good thing to have debt if you're a Virginia planter. Anyone want to take a guess why? You may not think of it today. If you have debt, someone trusts you to pay it. Therefore, you must be honorable. But because of the stamp duties and other duties, um, London merchants, of which Washington was heavily indebted for all the trappings of being a gentleman, they were called in. How dare you? Aren't I good for it, Washington thought. And so he responds, thinking that his honor has been infringed on, but linking it to America as a whole. The eyes of our people already begin to open. will perceive that many of the luxuries which we have here to lavished our subsistence to Great Britain for can well be dispensed with whilst the necessaries of life are to be procured within ourselves. He's linking his own slights based on having these debts called in with the taxation elements of America as a whole. Jefferson's coming from an intellectual angle. Washington's coming from one of tried and true ex personal experience that he links more broadly. Here we are where we started the presentation. And the Continental Association, First Continental Co Congress, is going to make these declarations based on sacred ties of virtue, honor, and love of our country. Collective unity over boycotts, over resisting British goods, British slights. But what governed people to uphold this? Absolutely nothing. This is not a formal government. It's only due to each person's beliefs, their own sense of, uh, of ethical behavior. What changes things? Battle of Lexington and Concord. And there were attempts, there were possibilities of peace, but Jefferson is going to regard the battles as unprovoked murder. Uh, it's an open violation of plighted faith and honor in deliverance of the sacred obligations of treaty, which even savage nations observe. Britain, so there's a lot of question over who actually fires the first shot at Lexington. Um, no one knows, but everyone blames the other. Um, Probably two shots very close together. Anyway, um, each side claims a grieved status, and, and Jefferson, among others, used a sort of just war, law of nations tradition of fighting a defensive war, an ethical war. And this is what allows Americans to maintain an order of moral supremacy, the moral high ground, and they use it. They don't want to just win the war. They want to win well. But the biggest hurdle is... Their, loath, their, their oaths, their bind, bonds to the king. And using the philosophical, the Montesquieu, uh, the Berlamachi, the Locke, the Vattels, they're able to see the loophole. And that is the idea that if a king does not behave honorable, you have no ties to him. So they want to win the war, but they want to win the war well. Proper treatment of prisoners, proper conduct in the field. And they are going to pledge, in probably the most famous usage, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, which uh, Jefferson is going to author, along with others, although he won't tell you that, um, that we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And look at the term sacred honor. It's using it in a religious sense, but it's the creation of a civic religion, something all people, regardless of their faith denominations, could embrace. It's a common shared language. Washington will become commander-in-chief, and he vows to serve for my country's honor and my own character, a fundamental reversal of the words he used at the start of the French and Indian War. Washington is now dedicated to the preservation of what is best for the nation, the greater good. And he expects his officers and soldiers to function in much the same way. The idea that he looks for honorable people in society, 
And those are the people that should lead. If you have a degree of honor, a reputation, something that you could lose, these are your officer corps. Where do they get ideas of expanding this, of, of proper, of these new styles of fighting? Washington uses a defensive style, a war of posts, so to speak. The idea that traditionally victory and honor were linked. And Washington is going to come to a different conclusion, largely through reading military texts. If you behave well in the field, you are due honor, regardless of the result. So religion, upon which true honor is founded. So there is still a religious element, but honor consists in the constant practice of virtue. And the duty of a soldier is honorable and honest were properly performed. Duty is linked to honor. Um, the idea that you shouldn't be a drunken or a vicious army. This would infringe on the national perception. Don't risk your men needlessly. At a time when the British army considers common soldiers to be rabble, Washington preserves his army. So long as the army is in the field, they can win. Taking lessons from Frederick the Great um, and also Humphrey Bland. This is the most popular military text um, of the period. The idea that even if you lose, your honor is still intact. And he, he relates this to Lafayette. Washington does. You'll see on, on the last image. The idea that preserving the army in and of itself is honorable because anyone that serves the nation is due some honor. Any service, whether you are um, a, a, a woman uh, collecting money for the Continental Army, whether you are boycotting English goods, any service. And that's why we see it expanded. You see General Anthony Wayne and uh, Maryland officer John Howard are going to talk about honor existing for officers and soldiers alike and speaking to the nation, not just for themselves. In the British Army, the lower ranks of soldiers were, were in many cases, dismissed from honor culture. In America, it's embraced. There's no real, the social hierarchy of the older aristocracy doesn't exist. It starts to break down. That's why the term gentleman soldiers is actually coined. And it's a, it's a word that is virtually foreign in Europe. It would be gentlemen officers. But in America, we have the term gentlemen soldiers. And it starts as early as 1775. And this is actually the, the first usage I found. It was actually at Mount Vernon. Uh, that it was a, an oration, gentlemen soldiers, for their good conduct, their noble character in the service of their country. Um, in New Jersey, every soldier should be a gentleman. How do they advance? Based on merit. And the idea that each soldier had to worry about their own sense of honor, something fundamentally different. It also expanded to African-American soldiers, who Washington's initially resistant to freed African-Americans and, and later to slaves through a combination of reasons, some pragmatic, perhaps some ideological, we start to see uh, service of African-Americans. And they're, they're also celebrated, particularly um, Salem Poor, who behaved like an experienced soldier, excuse me, uh, behaved like an experienced officer as well as an excellent soldier. So not just a soldier, but an officer. That African-Americans were equally serviceable with other men. This is uh, the last one from pension record. Bravery and good conduct are proved to have been such as would have done honor to any man. Not any black man, any man. So it starts to expand. Meanwhile, uh, Jefferson starts to develop some ideas in what he's later going to term natural aristocracy, which to the American ear sounds scary. Um, but basically what he's saying is there are people who should advance in society based on learning, based on education, based on morals. And he's saying it's these people, these persons who nature hath endowed with genius and virtue, that are responsible for guarding the ideals of the nation. And it's these people, regardless of wealth, status, birth, based on their honor, based on their virtue, based on their morals, should guide the nation. At the same time, in 1779, Jefferson is credited with creating the honor code for the College of William and Mary. Um, it's often credited as being the first honor code. That's not entirely true. There, there, there are honor codes that exist, but they're less formalized. Um, and 
it's difficult to find the original. So this is actually an early 19th century version. Um, but the idea is a student's guilt or innocence was determined by giving evidence on his honor that the college may not be polluted by the presence of those who have shown themselves uh, equally regardless of the laws of honor, the principles of morality. So again, honor as morality, but the idea that they can't be compelled. It's based solely on their own personal belief system. And this is something Jefferson's developing and will express in greater terms in later years. And this is something that we'll also see at other Jefferson-founded institutions, particularly the Military Academy at West Point and the University of Virginia. Meanwhile, treason of the blackest die. So uh, American war hero Benedict Arnold commits treason with John Andre, so his spy handler. And this is an absolute low point of the war. There's been civil martial tension. Washington senses this, and he uses it. Not as a moment of great sorrow, a great horror, but as a moment of joy. He says, great honor is due to the American army that this is the first instance of treason of the kind where many were to be expected from the nature of the dispute, and nothing is so bright an ornament in the character of the American soldier as there having been proof against all the arts and seductions of an insidious enemy. This has never happened before. Look how lost to honor Britain is. And much like many sort of shocking, galvanizing moments in American history, whether it's Pearl Harbor or 9-11, it writes the country. The country comes together again under the shared sense of honor, the shared sense of national duty, and within a year, the war is over. So maybe Benedict Arnold did help win the war. Anyway, moving on. War's over. There's still a major battle left to fight in upstate New York, and it's Washington against his own officers. In what comes to be known as the Newburgh Conspiracy, uh, there's a possibility that several of the Continental Army officers are planning a coup against Congress, who had promised them half pay for life, plus their salaries, which they had not received. As the war is drawing to an end, they sense that if the peace treaty is issued, they won't get paid. Possibly a coup against Congress, possibly retreating past the mountains and letting the British Army march out of New York and do what they will. Washington catches wind of this, calls his own meeting, addresses them based on honor. And let me conjure you in the name of our common country as you value your own sacred honor, referring to the Declaration again, to express your utmost horror and detestation of the man who wishes under any specious pretenses to overturn the liberties of our country. And the conspiracy comes to nothing. The army disbands. Unlike so many other revolutions, we do not get a dictator. We do not get a military strongman. Washington, in fact, is going to surrender his commission before Congress, returning to civilian supremacy. He would not be a king. He would become what was termed the American Cincinnatus after the Roman general who gave up his sword and returned to his plow. The idea that this would not devolve like a Caesar or a Cromwell. All the fears of a standing army were allayed. There was no conspiracy after the war. Washington surrenders power. But in the aftermath, we have the creation of an organization that was discussed prior to Newburgh called the Society of the Cincinnati, which still exists. It's an ancestral organization um, of the firstborn sons of Continental Army officers and French Army officers that fought in the war. And they're basic, it's a fraternal organization for benefit uh, veterans, but it's also to preserve, and they say this, uh, their national honor. Uh, the, the honor of the nation, and they regard each man as bound by their own personal honor. Now, in and of itself, it's a completely benign institution founded by Henry Knox and Alexander Hamilton. Washington becomes the first president general, but there's resistance because of the birth element. And men like uh, Samuel Adams and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are terrified of this. They think it reeks of aristocracy. And Washington doesn't think so. Uh, he, he understands, he still believes in social hierarchy, one that you can advance based on merit, but hierarchy still exists. 
He understands the idea of being members of certain organizations where there's no rank distinction within the organization, uh, such as the Society of Cincinnati or Freemasonry, some thing, uh, things of that sort. But Jefferson's wary, and it helps him to finally get him to display his own new definition of what honor is. And it's something that's been, he's understood, and it's something we see glimpses of, but by 1785, Jefferson's going to give his own version. Uh, this is Jefferson in France. You'll notice he looks a bit aristocratic. Uh, he tries to have this painting suppressed in later years to look more Republican. Um, anyway, he says of honor, Never suppose that in any possible situation or, any, or under any circumstance that it is best for you to do a dishonorable thing, however slightly so it may appear to you. Whenever you are to do a thing, though it can never be known but to yourself, ask yourself how you would act were all the world looking at you and act accordingly. Traditional sense, honor is about community reputation, how the community views you. Jefferson's putting it in those terms, but he's saying, don't be concerned about that. You have to answer to yourself, your own sense of honor, like he had done at the, the William and Mary uh, Code. It's very similar to our modern sense of conscience, that honor is internal. It's no longer about the perception of others. It's no longer about holding a certain reputation. It's how you behave nothing else. And therefore, honor would become accessible to all sorts of other people through their own behavior. But we do have a change, and it's largely uh, based on political tension of the, the French Revolution, the Constitution. Um, so from this constitutional moment, the debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and then Federalists and Democratic Republicans, this is where it starts to change. Involvement in the French Revolution, is an alliance held. What is national honor? Both political parties advance that they are in favor of national honor. They just said the other one is not, and they don't agree on what it is. So I'm going to read a final excerpt on what happens um, to American politics towards the end. Although the debate over national honor began as primarily professional and politically focused, with even Jefferson admitting that Alexander Hamilton was disinterested, honest, and honorable in all private transactions, it soon began to transform into a more personal matter of honor. As the 19th century dawned, a heightened sense of self was evident in American politics. The rhetoric of national honor certainly remained, but in many places it became secondary to maintaining one's own status and office. Thus, it would become possible for a politician like Aaron Burr to be regarded as politically honest by one party, despite having inordinate personal ambition, while another cast him as lost to political ethics based on his unbound ambition. Reputations were slandered, mocked, and attacked in order to gain political currency. As politics would slowly begin to devolve from an arena focused on national honor into an affair of personal honor. With peace came questions about how the United States of America was to be governed and what ideals should represent its foundations. While most citizens agreed that honor and virtue were defining elements, they differed greatly on how these concepts related to governance, policy, and society. Contestations over the interpretation of national and personal honor would in turn spark infighting, dissension, and rival belief systems highlighted by the development of political parties. For as Jefferson would write to his old friend John Adams after years of separation due to a political feud, one of the questions on which our parties took different sides was on ethics. Thank you. So I'm happy to take questions. I know there's two wireless mics running around. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll do the auctioneer bit. And then you can pay me later. Okay. An interesting, uh, interesting talk. Can you, can you, I, where, oh, there you are. Hello. Yes. Uh, interesting talk. And thank you. Uh, thank you for making it. Um, it's good to know uh, one of your points was that uh, Washington was a supporter of equal pay for equal work. So we're pleased, pleased about that. He's ahead of his time. Uh, perhaps another term for honor is character. And uh, you've referenced that a couple of times. Yes. But in the course of it, you saw uh, 
honor seemed to ebb and flow on some of your charts. Mm -hmm. Did you find any consistency in triggers for those times that were up and those times that were not? Yes. Um, tradition, the common theme is war. And you notice a spike in usages of honor, particularly national honor in and around war. So you notice during the Revolutionary Era, you'll notice around about the War of 1812, and then you'll say uh, again around the Civil War. And it's largely that war has always been a great uh, aspect of social mobility, allowing people to, to rise up in the ranks of, of the military and then to convert the sort of military rank to a sort of social standing. But we very much see it uh, during war, less so uh, prior. And the issue is the change from the sort of focus on, the, on the, the honor of the nation, doing what's best for the nation, to what's best for the individual personal honor starts to change um, around about the War of 1812, perhaps a little earlier. And it's not the revolutionary generation. It's their children, their sons, their grandsons, who are trying to measure up to their fathers, their grandfathers, who had fought in this glorious cause, who had created a new nation. And they want to find a way to prove their own character, as you say, to make a way for themselves. And, and oftentimes, they turn to war. The War of 1812 is certainly cast as almost a duel between nations. This is also when we have the, the, the rise of dueling. Before 1800, there's only 75 duels in the history of America. After 1800, it's about 750. Uh, that's recorded, because in many places, it's illegal, so we have no way of knowing. And it's because dueling allowed young men to prove themselves in a way that, that um, only war could for the earlier generation. And that's why we see it heightened during 1812. And then again, differing determinations, different interpretations of what national honor is when we come to the Civil War. I'm happy to talk to people at, when I scribble on books. This, 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 this is a loaded one. Sure. Uh, what would Washington or Jefferson say of Donald Trump? <laughs> I don't know what Washington and Jefferson would say, but I would say I don't talk about things after 1812. Uh, <laughs> but I would, I'll, I'll, I'll play along, and I'll say that they would say this to Donald Trump. They would say this to who's ever in the White House. They would say this to any politician. They would say this to any soldier. They would say this to any American. The ideas of honor, ethics should guide you. Washington and Jefferson would say that it's important to do what is best for the nation and uphold the principles of American Constitution, of the founding during the American Revolution, and to do what is best for the greatest number rather than for the individual. And I think that's a lesson that's true for all, not just for our, our current politicians. Well, thank you.